Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, what we read earlier, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And that's always the part where we say amen, right? Every day has has enough of its own. Uh, I think we come back to that passage from time to time because every single one of us, you know, there are, there are spiritual issues that strike one person or another person or another. Hey, you can read through, for example, if we read through the Ten Commandments, not everybody here, we're all sinners, right? We've all broken commandments. But not everybody here has broken all ten. Uh, maybe 9.5, but not all, not all ten, right? There's always at least something there where you go, you know, I've never, I've never really struggled with that. And if we're, if we're not careful, we'll sit there and say, well, I've never struggled with, you know, number five, six, or four, whatever that would be. We start, you know, kind of do this, you know, I, I, I'm pretty good, I'm all right. But the truth is, there are some things that every single one of us worries about, at least some, that we struggle with, at least some. And this is one of those. Not just the idea of of worry and and fear of tomorrow. You know, will I have what I need? Am I going to make it through? Will will God provide? Will I be able to? Blah, 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 blah. You know, we just just make long, long lists. I'm reminded, and I almost used it. I just wasn't quite sure of the movie What About Bob. You either love What About Bob or you hate What About Bob. You know, I've never met anybody who said, you know, it's okay. They either go, that's the best movie ever, ever, or they cringe. And one of the people I know that that was the biggest hater of What About Bob I've ever known, it was because she was going to be a therapist. <laughs> she was sitting there going, that better never happen to me. But in What About Bob, at the very beginning, when he's sitting with his therapist, he says, well, you know, let's begin with, you know, what is it that, that scares you? What are you afraid of? And he starts going through and he says, moving Okay, you're afraid of moving. Let's talk about moving. He says, well, I'm okay. I'm, I'm pretty good when I'm at home. But as soon as I go out the door, I just I start getting sick. And he starts running through all these symptoms. You don't want to know bowel symptoms and everything else, you know. Just worried to death, just sick and, and gut-wrenched just by the idea of going outside the house. And then he starts going into his fear of... of uh, of heart attacks, and he says, but if I fake them, then it's not so bad. So then he fakes a heart attack right there in the doctor's office, you know, thinking maybe that will help him. That doesn't, that doesn't work, as you learn through the rest of the movie. We, we try all different kinds of little things to try and alleviate worry. You know, we can, we can breathe, 
and breathing does does help some. Uh, if you if, if you stop, you may have more things to worry about. That is true. So breathing probably a good thing to keep doing anyway, regardless. But we try things to try and get our minds off of what we're worried. The problem is, if all we try is distraction, then worry finds a way back, doesn't it? As soon as the distraction is over, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to think about that right now. I'm going to watch Gilligan's Island. His problems are bigger than mine, hopefully. And so you watch it. But those shows end, and you go to bed, and then you stay up all night long or off and on or all through the next day consumed by your fear of something that may or may not be anywhere within your control, right? We've all been there. We've all done it. And it's just part of of being human and part of our human frailty. It's part of our weakness as humans. Worry is not a strength, okay? There are healthy fears. Uh, If you have, for example, if you have a fear of snakes, my wife has a fear of snakes. Now, it it might be more extreme, than others, because if I just even breathe out to make a hissing sound, I'm not going to do it, I promise, like a snake, I will be in trouble for a week and a half, okay? I will be grounded just by that sound. The other day, I opened a drawer and found a plastic snake, and I don't know which of my children it belongs to. I think Ellie, it's Ellie. Emma just threw her totally under the bus. The, she's like, it's hers. Uh, <laughs> And all I could think was, wow, i got to hide this thing better than this because somebody's going to be in trouble or we're going to have like health insurance bills. So I didn't know what was going to happen or we're going to have to repair the hole in a drawer after she shoots it because that is quite likely. That, hers might be stronger than some, but, you know, a healthy fear, one that at least says, if I'm going to go out when I was growing up, if you went by the gate at our ranch, you needed a healthy fear of snakes. Somebody was showing me, I can't remember who it was now, somebody was showing me a video, the, I think it was Emmett, showing me a video the other day of a guy who did not have a healthy fear of snakes. And he was doing some, some doofy things on YouTube. Don't be YouTube, okay? But a healthy fear would say, if I'm going to go up by like this gate that we had on our ranch, over to the side were, were two old holes, you know, probably dug by a fox or whatever. I'm I'm all of a sudden completely ignorant of all animals in West Texas. I can see them, but I can't pronounce them. Armadillos, things like that. Something's dug a hole there before because that's where the snakes get them. Because what are they going to dig with, really? So God kind of made it hard. You're going to go live in a hole, but see what I did? That's kind of, you think God doesn't have humor. But there were these two big dens, just like from me to you, to Donnie there, uh, where there were always snakes. I mean, if we went to our, it's so weird. Now I go, I go out and I'll, you know, hunt. I go and I mess around and do all this stuff. And I don't see snakes like I used to. I know they're there. I have a healthy fear. I still live as if they're going to be in that den every time. And when I walk to open the gate at Goldthwaite, I walk up there like I walked to our gate when I was a kid. Because that's just called experience, right? And so I remember one time out here at Zephyr. This is not going to be a snake sermon, okay? I promise. I'm not going to get into snake handling. But uh, that's, that's, that's not for us. The, uh, out here at Zephyr when I was a kid, I was with my grandparents. And we're walking up to the front porch of the house. And my dad lives out there now. And we're, we're walking up to the front porch. And over in the corner of the yard from about me to Gale over there, uh, this little snake pops up out of a den that was in the corner of the yard, which is why I never played in that yard. I'd go play all over the ranch, but not in that yard. 
We had lots of snakes out there. This little snake pops up. My grandfather had a shotgun because experience. And so he had a shotgun and apparently a lot of backup ammo in his pocket that I didn't know about because he shoots this snake, falls back into the den, pops back up. He pulls another shell out of his pocket, shoots the snake, pops back up. He does this full pocket, I guess. He does this nine times. Finally, nothing pops back up. He walks over there. Nine snakes. Okay, that's a bad day. It had to have been a Monday, didn't it? So because each day has enough worry of its own and Mondays have nine snakes full. But he, uh, you know, he had experience. That's a healthy understanding. There are there. So what I'm going to say is when Jesus says, don't you ever worry about anything? He's not saying don't take care of your necessities. Don't be, uh, don't ever find yourself scared of what circumstance you find yourself in. There are times where it's a healthy fear. There are, are real life circumstances. There are times where you may find yourself uh, in a, a threatening circumstance out in public. I've been there, done that, where you keep your wits about you. That's healthy. But there are also fears that Satan uses. Fears uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago about fears of other people, fears of people who are different from ourselves and how Satan uses those to drive wedges against uh, between us so that we actually continue in, in a deeper misunderstanding rather than in getting to know other people. So that's, that's, that's one of those fears Satan uses. There are others. Here he speaks of one specific. Our worry about our daily life. Will we be taken care of? Will we have what we need? You, you know, I, I can relate to that one. You know, I, I'm 45 years old. If, if, if I go into retirement at a normal age as a, as a preacher, you think I don't know fear about food for tomorrow? You know, I, my refrigerator is good now, but, you know, that's the way that is. So you, we worry about those things. There's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with having a healthy fear that says, I probably should be a good steward and help take care of that as God has blessed me and do what God would have me do, kind of the ant and the grasshopper comparison. Make sure that I am an ant setting up and, and getting ready, right? So, so there is that. But most of us take it at some point much further than that. And we start to question, will God really take care of me? Will I really have everything that I need? Will I really be taken care of all of my life? Uh, I'd place to start, but I want to start looking at this, the solution to this, with somebody who didn't have those worries too much. A guy named Solomon. Solomon, very wealthy guy, king of Israel, and, and, and very uh, successful in his reign as far as money and things go. Uh, providing that he's the one, it's debated sometimes, but providing he's the one who wrote uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, this is what he said. He said, I got to a point where I, I had everything, everything. That a person would want. And he says, verse 10 of chapter 2, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart to delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toll. Now that sounds great if we isolate this passage, right? It almost sounds like, hey, here's part of the Bible where it says, I can go out and have everything I want. It's going to be great. And I'll just, I'll just collect all the toys and it's going to be awesome. Right. And I'll, I won't say no to myself for anything. We could turn it into like a Bible blessed hedonism if we weren't careful. But context is everything, isn't it? Because in the book of Ecclesiastes, what Solomon is saying throughout the book is as much as I chased after all these things and was successful at it, as I kept finding myself 
just as hollow as before. I bought all those things, built all those, all those things, and involved myself in all those things as I was at the beginning until I turned my heart back to. He hadn't done that quite yet here. Well, he has, but not, not in his revelation of, of what he learned. In, uh, in verse 11, he says, it's the highlighted part, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands have done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And we would look at that and say, well, maybe you should give it to me. <laughs> you know, right? That's the way we might think about it. Maybe if I had those, maybe Solomon just didn't do it right. Maybe he just wasn't rich the right way. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I have actually had everything you chase after, everything you worry about, everything you work for and toil for, the things that you sacrifice time, energy, effort, maybe even family, maybe even the health of your spiritual, spirituality and your soul. I actually have been there and had it. And what I can tell you is that once I sat down, I looked back at it and I said, you know what? It's chasing after the wind. You can just picture now, that should be a scene in What About Bob? Chasing after the wind. Because Bill Murray could pull that off, couldn't he? In a scene like that. You just picture yourself out there trying to... Go to West Texas and try it. you spend the rest of your life, won't you? You'll never catch it. You know how I know? I did it. I did it. I was determined as a child to catch a dust devil. You ever tried doing that? Those little mini tornadoes that happen out in the cotton fields of West Texas. I was out in Ackerley as a kid, and at any given time, you just go outside, and there's six of them right around you. So, you know, they're, they're, they're entertaining. And <laughs> you need more friends when dust devils are not your only... No, I'm kidding with you. But, you know, I would go out there, and I just thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could run right up into the middle? I couldn't even run up into the middle of the thing. It always moved, you know. It's not that you just stand still. It's chasing after the wind. And our, our chasing after stuff is often the same way. And it leaves us over and over empty and often worried because we never quite have everything that we need, even when we think we do. We arrive there and realize, you know, something's kind of still missing. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, he gives us, uh, I think, the first part of what we need in order to come to an understanding of what really Jesus means. And that's perspective. We need to understand that God loves us and He takes care of us. And so chasing after all of this stuff can be a, a futile exchange. There's no, no point to it because in the chasing, we often miss the blessings we were supposed to have seen, supposed to have experienced, and, and to have had in the first place. How many times have we heard people say at the end, men, men are really bad about this, that at the end of their career, they don't care about if they'd worked more what they really come to find is that they wish they'd actually invested more time in their family. God had given them the time. Consider the lilies of the field. Get some perspective. God had actually given them that time. Former coach at Notre Dame did exactly that. When he retired, he looked at his life and he said, you know, I've got a lot of championships here and I've been in the top ten, taking my team to the top ten several times over. And he looked at it all and he said, but... But I need to sit down and see if, if any of this, if all of this was really headed in the right direction. And he sat down and he came to the conclusion that he had chased after a lot of things that were not what he wanted to pass on to his family and to future generations. And so he said, what should my priorities be? And he said, as we've often said and, and, and hopefully have built our lives around, and if not, listen to what he said. He said, I think I, I need to put God first. He retired so he could. He wanted to put God first. His family, right there second. 
and his ministry third. And after that, he went on, instead of just spending all of his time on all of the, the rings and trophies, he founded Promise Keepers, a movement that would focus men back on what really deeply matters. Their relationship with God, their relationship with their wife, their relationship with their kids and with their grandkids and with their neighbor. Because that perspective had changed everything. And this is part of, I think, what Jesus is saying when you look at the greater context of what he says. He doesn't just say, listen, don't worry about it. Don't, don't be worried about whether or not you got money for groceries. What he's saying is, get a perspective that is much healthier than the worry that you hold on to and the fear that tends to drive you. Don't be driven that way. Understand, look out at the grass, look at the fields. And actually, we can actually use this. You know, three years ago, we would have gone, look out at the grass, are you kidding me? But right now, look at what God has done. And see, if He doesn't take care of so many things that you would say are, some of them, worthless compared to you, compared to your children, compared to your spouse... Don't you think he cares? And don't you think he's actually working toward providing for you already even before you ask? He'll go on to talk about that in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the context of the perspective he gives us here in Matthew chapter 6. Ask. Get some perspective. That asking is, is really the second part. In Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 7, we come here often. I don't know if it'll show up to the... Oh, I haven't clicked as far as I thought I had. In Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 7... Six is highlighted yellow. It doesn't show up today. And four is too. Up on, on at the beginning of verse four, the sentence that says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Sometimes we read that totally isolated from its context. And we will hear Paul giving an absolute command. Almost a rejoice. I told you to rejoice. You know, that doesn't sound right, does it? If you went in and, and said, you could, Why don't you shut up and rejoice already? And again, I say it, rejoice. That doesn't. It doesn't work. Every dad will try it at some point, but it, it doesn't work. It's usually said in a minivan, a suburban, or a station wagon going down the highway, isn't it? If you don't start rejoicing instead of complaining, we're going to pull this thing over. That's never good. No rejoicing ever follows a pullover. Am I right? Ever. Ever. So we read this like it's that sort of a command almost, and it's not. It has a context, a context which actually gives us the answer. How do I get from the beginning of verse 4 to where I actually have what he promises later on in verse 7, the peace that passes understanding? How do I get from one to the other? Because he actually tells us right there in the paragraph. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now that, that second part, besides just first, it's, it's just make up a decision. I am going to be thankful and find a reason to praise God for what I already have in the circumstance where I already am. I will rejoice in the Lord always. Even in those more difficult times, I will find what God is doing that is good and right, even in the midst of the hard. Okay, that, that is part of it, that mindset. The second is, he t then says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Why do you think, you ever wonder why he puts that in the middle of an encouragement to be rejoicing, praying, and finding peace? Could it be that, that sometimes we need to be reminded in the midst of circumstances where we have to be reminded to rejoice? Great circumstances where everything is perfect, we don't have to be reminded to rejoice. When things are hard, do you think sometimes we're tempted to get cranky? And the Bible deals with cranky. Yeah, I don't like it either, but he does. He says, rejoice. 
Step one. Step two, you know, fix your attitude. Step two, watch the way you treat people in your hard times because God's close by. And I think that's both a promise of he sees what you're doing, but even more because God's close by. The answer is close by. God's provision is close by. God's deliverance is close by. And if God is already working on the answer, don't bite somebody's head off in the middle of a hard time. That can be easier or yeah, easier said than done, can it? Because because the, the crankies do move in every now and then it happens. But he says, remember, get perspective and remember that you can carry it to the Lord. Look at verse six. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about it. This goes right back to, to Matthew six. But in every situation, every one by prayer and, and thanks, excuse me, by prayer and petition. I almost said supplication. That's the new American standard by prayer and situation by prayer. I'm still going to say supplication and y'all just going to have to see something different on the screen. OK, this is going to happen. Present your requests. It's been in there too long. Present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I think Paul tends to word things certain ways on purpose. So when he says, I want you to make sure that in every situation, the hard ones, too, you look at his life experience, you look at the things he went through, the, the perspective he brings to the table. Shipwrecked, beaten, ridiculed, constantly, he says, in danger. He knew what it was like to have a lot and to be well off. And he knew what it was like to be dead broke and wondering where the next meal was going to come from. He also says elsewhere, and I learned even in all those circumstances, how to be content. How did he learn that? It's right here he's telling us. How can I rejoice in hard times? How can I pray in hard times in every situation? One is perspective. Two is prayer. Give it to God. In every circumstance, go to God. And he says, and don't forget to be thankful. Even when you're there to gripe, don't forget to be thankful. Even though when you're there to say, God, why? But thank you. <laughs> you know, it needs to be in there. And if, if you wonder what that looks like, just go look at a lot of the Psalms. Sprinkled throughout the Psalms are times where David and other people were frustrated. And they say so to God. They wonder where he is and why the answer's not coming as quickly or as well or in the same way that they thought it ought to come. And in every one of those, or at least nearly, it's a missed one, is, but God does bless me in this way. And I know ultimately you do hear me. And I know you'll deliver me. How, I don't know. When, I don't know. Why it hadn't come already, I don't know. The tracking number should have, says it should have been here three weeks ago. But I know, God... You've got this. And Paul says, when we will do that, when we will get the right perspective and we will give it over to God and spend that time in prayer, you will find peace that passes understanding. And when we found that peace, we then are ready to do what God says to do. And back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. When you get a, a, a perspective that God is going to work out whatever we need worked out. Somehow or another, I don't know how, it will be done. When you are constantly saying, God, I told them you'd do it. <laughs> I need you to follow through. And you go back and say, hey, what's going on here? And we get the peace that he's promised. We do. Then he tells us, I want you to have that priority then. I want you to go out with that peace, with that perspective, and I want you to put the kingdom first. I want you to go find somebody else who's more worried than you are 
and share with them the peace you've found. I want you to find somebody else who's having a hard time going to the throne room and asking those questions. And you go and you pray with them. And you go and you pray for them. And I want you to go and be an answer to prayer for somebody. I want you to go cook a meal. I want you to go paint a room. I want you to go serve. Because when you do, guess what I'm going to do? When you put His kingdom first, what does He do? All that stuff you were worried about, I'm going to take care of. He reminds the Corinthian church the same thing I said in Corinthians 8, chapter 8 and in chapter 9. And tells them, listen, I want you to go ahead and be generous because God will always refill your basket to be generous again. And the same thing is true of your energy, of your time, and of your effort. God will help you to serve again if you have kingdom priority. And I have found that the people who take that priority struggle the least with perspective. They struggle the least with peace. Because God often provides those two things when we serve. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again because you actually sent your son to live here among us to have the same needs, to be hungry, to be homeless, and to not always uh, have every little detail uh, planned out for the day before he struck out. And Father, we know that, that you provided in every way and you worked through him in every way. And you change the world. Father, we pray that you will, through us, uh, help us to provide for one another. Help us to serve one another. To be examples of your love to one another and to this community. Father, we pray that you would be with those who uh, did not get sleep last night because of worry. And we pray you give them peace and that you provide for them an answer. And Father, we pray that you would help us all, again, to be an answer to prayer for someone else. Put your kingdom first. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. If, uh, if you need to pray with uh, one of us or with us as a whole church, we always offer an opportunity to do that. And as always, you can either come down here, you can go to the back, and one of the elders will meet you there to pray with you in private if that's what you need. If it's your time that you've decided you're ready to follow Christ and to trust Him, you want to put His Word uh, first in your life, His will first in your life, and Him first in your life, and put him on in baptism, and we offer that invitation this morning as we stand and as we sing.